Part ten of The Secret of Everyday Things by Jean Henri Fabre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter twenty eight. Iron. Of all substances, iron displays the greatest power of resistance, and it is this property that makes it the most useful of all our metals. All sorts of tools are made of it, and without it, our industries would come to an immediate standstill. Yes, I see that iron is very useful, said Jules. But perhaps you do not see how useful it is. Reflect a moment, and you will perceive that iron has something to do with nearly everything in the house you live in. And at the very outset, in order that the house may be built, there is need of stone from the quarries, where picks and crowbars and chisels and hammers are in constant use, all these being, as you know, made of iron or steel. The beams and joists of the framework come from trees felled by the woodman's axe, and these timbers are squared and shaped, fitted and adjusted, with the help of various carpenter's tools, all made of the metal we are considering. Hardly a single one of our articles of furniture would be practically possible without this metal. We need the saw for cutting the log into boards, the plane and the draw-knife for smoothing the surface, the auger and the bit for burrowing the holes that are to receive the wooden pegs which hold the parts together. Our daily sustenance entails the use of iron in an almost equal degree. It calls for the spade, the hoe, and the rake for working the garden, which gives us our vegetables, and the ploughshare for the heavy work of the field, which furnishes us with bread. In the clothes we wear, too, we are hardly less dependent upon this indispensable substance. Of it are made the shears that clip the wool from the sheep's back, and of it also are made the carding and spinning and weaving machines that convert the wool into cloth. Our most delicate fabrics, our ribbons and laces, require the aid of this metal in their manufacture, and finally, is not the needle used in every stitch that is sewed, the needle so fine and sharp-pointed that nothing else could take its place? It is plain enough, said Marie, that iron is of the utmost importance to us, though we usually give it very little thought. It is so common that we make no account of it, in spite of the immense service it renders us. "'I should like to know how iron is obtained,' Claire here interposed, "'if Uncle Paul will tell us.' "'Iron ore,' he explained, "'is a yellowish or reddish stone of very unpromising appearance, "'with no resemblance to the metal so familiar to us. "'The furnace in which it is worked is a sort of high tower, "'swollen toward the base, tapering at the two ends, "'and measuring at least ten meters, sometimes twenty, in height. "'Through the upper door or mouth of the furnace "'is poured coal by the cartload,' with fragments of ore, and once lighted, the furnace burns uninterruptedly, day and night, until the masonry succumbs to the intensity of the heat. Workmen are continually piling on fuel and ore as fast as there is any subsidence in the burning mass, while other workmen at the base of the furnace watch the melting of the ore. Enormous blowing machines inject a continuous stream of air into the lower part of the furnace by a great tube, through which this current passes, not as a gentle breeze, but as a veritable tornado, raging and howling with an uproar that is fairly deafening. If one takes a peep into the furnace from the opening by which the tube enters, a sort of white-hot inferno dazzles the eye. Here stone melts like butter, and iron, separating from the impurities mingled with it, falls in glowing drops into a reservoir or trough at the base of the furnace. When the trough is full, a passage is opened by the removal of the clay stopper that closed it, and the liquid metal runs in a fiery stream into channels prepared for it in the ground. 
the metal thus obtained is impure iron and is known as cast iron it is run into molds to make stoves grates pots and kettles chimney plates water pipes and countless other objects although of great hardness cast iron is brittle it breaks easily when sharply struck one day said emile a stove cover broke into three pieces just from falling on the floor it is well to bear in mind his uncle observed that all our cast iron implements are more or less fragile and that it takes but a blow or a fall to break them then remarked claire cast iron won't do for making anything that must resist violent shocks hammers for instance no cast iron is worthless for tools that are subject to rough handling pure iron alone has the necessary resisting power to purify cast iron and convert it into wrought iron the workers heat it in still another furnace and when it has become quite red and soft it is hammered with a block weighing some thousand kilograms and which is raised by machinery and then falls with all its weight at each blow from this enormous hammer what is not iron escapes from the rest and runs off in a sweat of fire after this hammering the mass is grasped between two cylinders one above the other turning in opposite directions dragged along by this powerful ringing machine and flattened out by the irresistible pressure it becomes in a very short time a uniform bar of iron shears next take hold of the bar and cut it up into pieces of equal length what are there shears that can cut iron bars exclaimed claire yes my child in those wonderful factories where human invention is brought to bear on the working of iron there are shears that without the least appearance of effort cut clean through a bar of iron with each snip no matter if the bar is as big around as a man's leg with our scissors we could not more easily cut a straw but such shears cannot be operated by hand nor are the two blades moved at the same time while the one of them remains at rest on a support the other goes up and down as calmly and noiselessly as you please cutting with each downward stroke the bar of iron offered to it by the workman chapter twenty nine rust the dull red that dims the lustre of polished iron or steel is as you know rust or in learned language oxide of iron that is iron mixed with oxygen as it comes from the mine iron takes the form of rust mingled with stone what an unprepossessing appearance it then wears this most useful of all metals it is an earthy crust a reddish lump a shapeless mass in which the presence of any kind of metal whatever can be divined only after painstaking research and then it is by no means enough to determine that this rusty matter contains a metal it is still necessary to find some means of decomposing the ore and extracting the iron in its true metallic state what labor and experiment is not required to attain this end one of the most difficult imaginable how many fruitless attempts how many laborious trials other metals the greater number of them likewise rust the color of the rust varying with the metal iron turns a yellowish red copper green lead and zinc white take a knife and cut through a piece of lead the cross section shows a fine metallic luster but before long it becomes tarnished and a sort of cloudy appearance is noticeable this change begins as soon as there is contact with the air and in course of time it extends slowly indeed but surely until it penetrates to the very heart of the mass and ends by converting the lead into an earthy substance quite different in quality and the greater number of metals undergo a similar deterioration under like conditions 
then that green stuff we see on old copper coins is rust asked marie and the whitish coating on the water-pipe of the pump yes it is rust in each instance but all metals are not equally subject to rust iron is one of those that rust most quickly next comes zinc and lead in the third class are tin and copper and in the fourth is silver which remains free from rust with very little care finally gold is still more immune and never rusts gold coins and jewelry of the remotest antiquity come down to us as pure as brilliant as if made yesterday despite a sojourn of long ages in a damp soil where other metals would have turned to shapeless rust since it has such power of resistance to destructive agencies gold ought to be found and in fact is found always retaining its metallic properties especially its lustre in the bosom of the rocks where it is disseminated in its ore as we say it forms scales veins and sometimes big nuggets which shine like jewels just from the goldsmith's hands our earrings and finger rings carefully kept in their casket are not more brilliant than the particles of this precious metal found in the heart of a rock just as it occurs in its natural state it can be put to immediate use all that is needed is to hammer it and shape it hence it is the first of metals to be discovered and used by man yet owing to its extreme rarity it has never in our part of the world been used for common tools but has ever remained the preeminently precious metal reserved for jewelry and coinage chapter thirty tin plating iron said uncle paul is abundant and cheap furthermore the hottest fire in our stoves and grates cannot melt it and it is able to withstand rather rough usage these qualities are highly important in cooking utensils which must be resistant to the action of fire without risk of melting and have every day to undergo bangs and falls but unfortunately this metal rusts on the slightest provocation contact with a few drops of water for any length of time suffices to cover it with ugly red spots which eat into it and finally pierce quite through this rapid deterioration is prevented by tinning a metal is tinned by being overlaid with a thin coating of tin which resists rust now bear in mind this important point which i have already briefly touched upon rust develops only where air is present also it is promoted by various substances such as water vinegar and the juices of our vegetables and fruits nearly all the dishes we prepare for the table tend by their mere contact to rust metals capable of rusting and especially iron to prevent the formation of rust therefore what must we do the answer is plain keep our foods and the air from coming in contact with any metal that will rust if this contact never occurs rust will never form for there will be nothing to cause rust our obvious course accordingly is to coat the corruptible metal with one that will protect it and this last must fulfil two conditions it must not be liable to rust or at any rate it must be a metal that rusts with difficulty since otherwise one ill will only be exchanged for another and it must also be a metal from which food will contract no injurious properties this double requirement is met by very few metals there are first gold and silver both too expensive for common use and finally there is tin this metal is very slow to rust and furthermore tin rust if it ever begins to form does not form in any quantity and has besides no harmful properties tin therefore furnishes us the metallic coating we need for preserving our iron utensils from rust wouldn't it be much simpler asked claire 
to make those utensils wholly of tin in the first place and so get rid of iron altogether there is one serious objection to such a course tin melts easily a saucepan of this metal would not hold out for five minutes against the heat of a handful of glowing charcoal what would become of your stew in a cooking utensil capable of melting like wax over the fire i see now that tin by itself would never do nor would it answer for another reason it offers too little resistance it bends under slight pressure it is knocked out of shape with a blow we must have two metals combined iron to resist the heat and stand rough usage and tin to prevent rust if however the utensil is not to go over the fire it can in case of need be made of tin alone not very long ago in the country tableware for company use was of tin plates platters and soup tureens shone like silver on the shelves of the dresser and were the pride of the housewife our measures for wine oil and vinegar are of tin the use of this metal in preference to any other for utensils that are to come into contact with our food is due to its perfect harmlessness tin keeps its cleanness and polish and a still more valuable property communicates nothing injurious to the substances it touches you are familiar with those wandering tinkers with sooty faces who a kettle over the shoulder and a few old forks in one hand go through the street crying their trade in a shrill voice in the open air over a little charcoal fire they restore rusty covers to their first brilliance mend kettles and saucepans and plate with tin utensils of iron and copper to keep them from rusting the operation is very simple the piece to be tinned is first well scoured with fine sand and then heated over the fire and while it is still warm a little melted tin is rubbed over the surface with a wad of tow the tin takes fast hold of the underlying metal and covers it with a thin layer which will not come off with rubbing that is what is known as tin plating then what we commonly call tin said marie is really iron covered with tin yes it is tin plated iron and is made by plunging thin sheets of iron into melted tin these tinned sheets light and strong at the same time polished and rust-proof serve for the manufacture of numberless utensils the outfit of our kitchens consists in great part of tinware but it consists also of copperware remarked jules yes but copper has very dangerous properties which call for the utmost caution on our part iron rust is harmless i might even say healthful in limited quantities little children deficient in bodily vigor are sometimes made to drink water impregnated with a small quantity of rust from a few old nails in the bottom of the water-bottle nothing then is to be feared so far as our health is concerned from the rusting of iron it is coated with tin not as a safeguard against danger but to give the metal cleanliness and greater durability copper rust on the contrary is a violent poison this rust or vetigris is all the more dangerous in that it develops with extreme ease when copper comes in contact with our articles of food especially when the latter contain vinegar or fat have you ever noticed the greenish tinge imparted to the oil in lamps and to the candle drippings on candlesticks well this tinge comes from the copper that enters into the metal part of the lamps and candlesticks and is due to the verdigris dissolved in the oily matter our food containing as it almost always does some slight proportion of fat or oil contracts the same greenish tinge by remaining any length of time in contact with copper vinegar acquires it in a few moments this green substance from copper always bear in mind is a terrible poison which cannot be too carefully shunned the only safe course lies in constant watchfulness and in scrupulous cleanliness 
that keeps all copper utensils always bright and free from the slightest indication of a green speck. For greater safety, it is even preferable to use only tinned ware for culinary purposes. Proof against rust under its coating of tin, copper then ceases to be injurious, but only on condition that the tin coating is maintained intact, never uncovering a particle of the poisonous metal. As soon as the tin becomes dim and shows a little of red underneath, the utensil should be retinned. Lead is no less dangerous than copper, but this metal enters very little into domestic use, unless it be for cleaning bottles. A handful of small shot, shaken up in water, serves excellently to remove by friction the impurities clouding the inside of the glass. This practice, however, is not free from one grave danger. Suppose a few particles of lead are retained in the bottom of the bottle, and left there unobserved. Wine, vinegar, or whatever other liquid is afterwards poured in, is likely to cause the lead to rust, and will thus contract properties highly injurious to health. Without any one's suspecting it, there will lurk in the bottom of the bottle that is daily used a permanent source of poison. You see, therefore, what care should be exercised in order that not a particle of lead may be left behind after this metal has been used for cleaning purposes. Never forget that copper and lead are two poisonous metals, and that any carelessness in their domestic use may suffice to imperil our very lives. Chapter 31. Pottery. Travelers tell us of the strange methods adopted in preparing food by certain savage tribes, among whom that precious culinary utensil, the earthen pot, is unknown. They tell us, for example, that the Eskimos of Greenland boil their meat in a little skin bag, as I have already related to you. Footnote. See Our Humble Helpers. End footnote. The bag is not placed over the fire, but is filled with water and the food to be cooked, after which stones heated red-hot are dropped into it, and thus, laboriously and imperfectly, by repeated heating of the stones and dropping them into the bag, a dish of half-cooked meat mixed with ashes and soot is at last prepared. To such extremities we might be reduced if it were not for those little earthen pots, sold at a penny apiece, that rescue us from the dire straits familiar to the Eskimo. Let us now consider how this simple kitchen utensil is made. From the modest little porringer to the sumptuous porcelain adorned with rich paintings, every piece of pottery is made of potter's earth, or clay, which is found almost everywhere, but by no means of uniform quality. There are yellow clays, red clays, ash-colored clays, dark clays, and perfectly white clays. These last are free from all foreign matter. The others contain diverse alien substances. All are easily kneaded with water, forming a sort of unctuous dough capable of taking any prescribed form. The coarsest clays serve for making bricks, drain pipes, flower pots, and so on. Clays that lack purity but are still of fine texture are used for common pottery, and finally, clays of extreme purity, of snowy whiteness, furnish us porcelain. This degree of purity is very rare in clay, being found in France only in Hautfin around Limoges. Clay of inferior quality occurs in abundance in nearly all parts of the world. In order to give to moistened clay quickly and easily a regular form, the potter makes use of the potter's wheel. As illustrated in the picture I here show you, under the potter's work table is a horizontal wooden wheel which the operator sets in motion with his foot. The axle of this wheel carries at its upper end a small disc in the center of which is placed a lump of clay that is to be shaped by the potter. The latter thrusts his thumb into the formless mass, which rotates with its supporting disc, 
and this action suffices to produce a symmetrical cavity because of the regularity of the motion imparted to the clay as fast as the thumb enlarges the cavity the other fingers are applied to the outside to hold the mass in place to give it the desired shape and to preserve a uniform thickness of wall throughout in a few moments the piece is fashioned and we see the lump of clay hollowed out and made to stand up in the form of a bowl or jar having just the outline and thickness desired by the artisan the application of the palm of the hand slightly moistened suffices to polish the surface finally with tools designed for the purpose the piece is ornamented with mouldings for example it is enough to touch the rotating object with an iron point to trace an engraving line around it when the potter's wheel has done its part the vessel still damp is left in the air to dry after which it is dipped into a bath of water and fine dust of lead ore by the action of the fire this dust will presently be incorporated with the surface clay on which it rests and will become a sort of glaze or varnish without which the vessel would be permeable by liquids and would allow its contents gradually to ooze out and escape to complete the whole the vessel is subjected to a high temperature in an oven where the clay bakes and becomes hard as stone while the lead dust covering it melts and combines with the substance of the clay spreading over the surface as a brilliant varnish having the color of honey in this wise the more ordinary pottery is made the pottery constantly used in our kitchens and so valuable for its ability to bear heat without breaking in most cases the coating of lead has nothing to be said against it for our articles of food do not as a rule produce any effect upon it vinegar alone is of a nature to dissolve it slowly when kept long in contact with it especially if the vessel in question has not been properly baked hence it would be highly imprudent to use pots or jars having this lead glaze on the inside for keeping gherkins capers and other pickles preserved in vinegar this latter might in course of time dissolve the metal contained in the glaze and thus contract poisonous properties so that in seasoning a dish with a handful of capers one might run the very serious risk of lead poisoning pickles of that sort should be kept in glass jars or in common earthenware not glazed on the inside crockery is made of clay of fine quality its glaze which is of a beautiful milky whiteness is prepared from tin a harmless metal thus our food even when containing vinegar never contracts injurious properties from contact with this glaze i will say as much for the glaze of porcelain which contains no metal in its composition but results from the melting of the surface of the clay itself in the heat of the oven the clay being of extreme purity and whiteness hence we have no fear of any lead varnish which is recognizable from its honey yellow hue and is employed only for common pottery but as i said before this latter kind of glaze is to be feared only in case of prolonged contact with vinegar end of part ten